Welcome everyone to another episode of the Veterans and Ag Podcast, brought to you by AGD Consulting. I'm your host, Mike Desop, and here we explore the stories and insights from the military veteran and supporter communities who are leading the way for vets in agribusiness, ag tech, and agripreneurship. We swap stories, talk ag, and show how the grassroots nature of the ag community can be a natural fit for the military veteran. This is the second interview in our series with a variety of military veterans at Seaboard Foods. This week's guest is Brock Puffett, multi-site supervisor for Seaboard, a top U.S. pork producer and processor and leading export to 30 different countries. At Seaboard, Brock is responsible for everything that happens at multiple swine barns under his direct supervision, from the health and quality of life of the animals to facility maintenance and personnel issues, really everything. Brock grew up in the suburbs of Iowa, but spent many summers working on a farm, from baling hay, picking rocks, and cleaning stables. Not wanting to put additional burden on his single mother, already helping his sister through college, Brock decided to join the Navy, and like so many, to see the world, and to pursue his love of travel. Eight years and three deployments, working on arresting gear on an aircraft carrier later, Brock moved on to Seaboard Foods, but not without seeing parts of the world he could have never imagined, and truly being a part of something greater than himself. In this episode, we talk about some of those life experiences and lesson learned Brock has brought forward with him to Seaboard, and how they've made him a better leader in his current role at swine production. I did a lot of farm work. Um, I bailed hay in the summer. I, I picked rock. Um, just about the only thing I didn't do in Iowa that's very atypical is um, detassel. Um, that was about the only uh, ag type of thing that I didn't really ever do. Um, I was always busy baling hay, picking rock, um, and then I worked in some dairy um, dairy farms, very very small outfits, um, cleaning out stalls. Um, I I did the occasional milking um, here and there, <clears throat> um, and, and just just odd odd farm tasks, cleaning up, you know, cutting cutting wood, all that stuff. Right. Just just your your day-to-day stuff um, that I did but I, I always enjoyed um, a lot of people always called me weird but I really enjoyed bailing hay that was kind of a big thing that was um, refreshing for me um, yeah I was in sports and stuff so it was it was a good workout uh, for me especially um, I could always and I was always my own pace and so whoever I'd be on the baler and so um, the guy driving the tractor he'd be like you know do you want me to slope or do you want me to or speed up or slow down, you know, and I'd be like, speed up, you know, you can go faster. We can, you know, we can go faster. I, I, I can, I can take these off and, and, and stack them higher and quicker. And um, I've only ever had a couple of them tip on me. Picking rock is, is not a term I'm familiar with. So some farmers will, <laughs> some farmers you, you'll go, you'll basically walk through fields and you'll look for, for larger rocks um, that, that basically, um, that could mess up a combine, could mess up a plow, a disc, something that would really damage a piece of equipment um, as, as it rolled along. And so you just walk behind a trailer and a tractor and you yeah. grab rocks and throw them on, on top and get them out of the field. What I haven't heard you mention yet, Brock, is any relationship or familial connection with the military. Yeah. My, my grand- How did that whole thing come about? Yeah, my grandpa, he was actually the one. Um, he was in the Army. Uh, he, he did a tour in um, uh, Korea. Actually, he was over in Korea and, and fought over there. Uh, and so he was kind of the person that, uh, you know, I looked up to a little bit as far as that goes. And, 
and connection to the military other than other than him there was a few relatives here and there i had a great uncle that fought in world war ii um, in the army he was in the battle of the bulge yeah. uh, and, and you know he got a couple of purple hearts like he has a pretty uh, pretty massive uh, wound in his stomach where he got shot mm-hmm. uh, and so he was he was a very quiet person he never talked about it so it was always kind of that very that um, mysterious and actually he's, he's actually still alive today which is which is amazing um he's he's awesome um and you know he, he never really talked about anything but everybody said you know that he was there and did it and stuff and you saw his his medals and and you know his picture from from the war and stuff um, but as far as, as as far as that goes my connection that that was about it um the, the link to the military came when i just kind of felt like I wasn't going to go play college football. Like I love playing football. That was a big thing for me, but I just wasn't going to, I wasn't going to get any scholarships. I wasn't going to be, you know, a rock star, which is, which is fine. I loved it. I just wasn't big enough as far as size wise for my position. And so I needed to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Um, Cause I didn't really, school wasn't my big thing. I wasn't a big school. I wasn't a big book kid. Um, I like to be out outside working and doing, you know, work with my hands and so with my mom being a single mom, my sister's older than me, she was already in college um, and my mom was already helping her. I, I didn't want to put my mom in that situation of, yeah, I've got two kids in college now, you know, and, and she'd already struggled enough for me, especially um, that, that I didn't see that as a real option to go to college um, initially. And so, well, what's the next best thing the military, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, you can get paid right away. You can, you can get college eventually. Um, and you can do, you, you can go see the world and, and I travel was something that I have always just been amazed with and wanted to see the world basically. Um, and, and how better to join the military and have them pay for it. <laughs> both, both of the, um, of the, the grandparent backgrounds are in the army. Was it the Navy's slogan of come see the world? Is that what drew you to, or was it something else? I think the Navy was more the fascination of water. Um, I think that that I wanted to be on a ship. Um, I wanted to be out to sea. I thought, you know, the whole sailor thing was just, was, was just cool. Um, you know, it's tacky as it may be, you know, it's, it was just cool. I, I thought that I could go to more ports. I could see more places. I could, I could maybe travel, um, to more exotic places. I thought, you know, on the coast and, and, uh, and whatnot. So that's, that's the reason for the Navy. I I just, I could win the army, but I just was like, I think the Navy is probably better suited for me, uh, overall. So how'd that work? The desire to see the world? It, I think it worked out really well. So I, I graduated in, you know, obviously May of 07. I took that summer off, you know, to mm-hmm. go have fun and just kind of get my last hoorah out because I wasn't going to college and, I, you know, uh, all that stuff. So I was like, all right. And so I went to boot camp in like August, you know, graduated in Great Lakes and, and, and then um, went, to, went to Pensacola, uh, Florida for my A school. And so uh, down there from November to, you know, end of October to basically end of December. Um, so it wasn't too bad. Not <laughs> and that, a bad place to spend a winter. Not a bad place to spend the winter. Um, not at all. And so I went down there because I, I went into an aviation rate uh, for my for my job. And so that that's where all the aviation training is. The Blue Angels are down there. You know, they got all those, all that stuff is down there. And so that's where the, the big aviation community kind of trains. 
And so spent two months down there. Then I was in the top 10 of my class. So I got to pick orders. Um, you know, that goes if you're, you know, if you're a certain high, yeah, I know not everybody does it, but I was able to pick. So they gave us um, a bunch of carriers, aircraft carriers in Virginia. And I knew I didn't really want to go to Virginia. <laughs> I wanted to go West coast. And okay. so they had, they had a couple of carriers. They had two in Washington and I think one in San Diego. And I didn't really know if I wanted to go to California to be stationed there forever. Like I thought it would be cool to visit. And so I, I decided to go to, uh, to a carrier up in Washington state, the uh, USS John C. Stennis. Okay. And so um, that's where I chose to go. And, and I got orders there. Um, and that's where I did. I did three deployments there. Um, it was, it was, I spent five years there. I got, um, I, was, I was married out there. Well, I was married back home, but um, I married my high school sweetheart. Right. Um, and uh, she came out and the first two years of our marriage, I was actually deployed. <laughs> that's a, yeah. that's a good story. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so, right. Uh, <laughs> what, what specifically within the aviation community did you do on those carriers? Yeah. So I worked on the, I worked, uh, my, my, my title was aviation doses mate launch and recovery equipment. And so that was my full title. And so my rate was ABE um, for sh short, short term, my, my acronym. And so basically what that does is you take care of all the maintenance and the operation of the launch and recovery equipment. Okay. Um, so the catapults and the arresting gear. Yeah. Um, so when I got to, when I got to Washington and I got, I checked into my ship, uh, my master chief looked at me and uh, a couple other guys that checked in with me and goes, where do you guys want to go? And, and uh, <laughs> I was like, well, where do you want us? You know? And he's like, well, you're big guys. So you're going to go to the arresting gear. And so the arresting gear, just more for a bigger guy is, is more suitable. Um, there's not as many tight spaces and you have a lot heavier things you need to lift normally there. Yeah. So they usually send the bigger guys back there. And so that's basically for anybody who doesn't know it's, if I, I always try to reference Top Gun. So like, if you think of Top Gun, right? Um, you know, the beginning sequence when they come and they land on the carrier and they catch that wire. Well, that wire is what I would basically control, right? I, I would do the maintenance um, there because there's a big engine underneath the aircraft carrier that that it's all on hydraulics and, and air um, and whatnot. And so that is what stops that plane. And so that equipment is what I worked on. So I was basically a maintenance tech for that equipment. Um, and then we were on the operations side of it when we were doing flight operations. Um, and so that's, that was kind of my job. Um, that's what I did for five years. That whole system for those that don't know is just incredibly <laughs> impressive. You're talking about an aircraft going several hundred miles an hour to essentially zero, zero. in less about than 300 feet. Yeah. About a little bit, a little less than 320 feet. Yeah. It, it stops. Just ridiculous. Yep. It's, and the catapult system is steam-based. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the old system is actually now the new one. The actually the new system is a magnetic, electromagnetic system. Um, so the, the next, the carriers from the uh, USS Ford and beyond will all be the, they call it EMOL, so the electronic, electromagnetic, it, I can't remember the acronym for it, but um, it's, it's the electromagnetic catapult. And so that's going to be on every carrier from now on. Um, but the old one is, was all steam. And so you had to have steam to launch that catap catapult to get that air aircraft up in the air. Um, and so it was, it was a very high op, op tempo. It was very, um, it was, it was a lot. Um, Give it, us a sense, Brock, of, uh, of what some of those three deployments were like, and maybe a story or two from those experiences where you've 
got something that you still keep with you today? Yeah, well, my first one was nice because it was a it was it was a true kind of Westpac. We didn't actually go into the Middle East, which was kind of nice. We stayed in a lot of the South China Sea, making sure China was okay, and then mm-hmm. monitoring you know North Korea, um, you know, just making sure everything is good. And and saw a lot of very cool Asian ports, you know, Thailand, Malaysia, um, Japan. Uh, Hong Kong. That was that was my first port as a 19 year old sailor. That was that was that was crazy. Um, it was amazing. Um, still still one of my top two between that and Thailand are probably my favorite um, ports we ever went to. Um, it was just just absolutely stunning. Um, it, it, that was my first deployment. And my second deployment we did go over um, in the Middle East, um, and, and we actually I can't remember which one it was, but we flew the last. I think it was I think it was Iraqi Freedom that we we did we flew the last sorties over iraq as the guys were pulling back into kuwait Mm. Um, and we just the the air boss came over and said hey everybody's back in kuwait and they're safe and that was kind of a moment that just kind of it just kind of hit me and it was like wow like i just i was a part of something that we closed something out um you know the mission was complete we we got everybody back across you know the, the Kuwaiti border safely um no nobody got hit with an IED nobody got ambushed nobody you know and so just having that knowledge that yeah we sent those airplanes out there to make sure those guys those boys on the ground they were safe and they were came home that that just meant a lot to me that was a really big moment in my career um it, it, I know it doesn't sound like much but it just it felt really good uh, I felt like I was a part of, a part of something there are instances and it's it's surprising to hear you say that you kind of recognized it in the moment instead of retrospectively it's really hard to to capture the significance of those at the time but when you get a chance to sort of sit and think you can rationalize it and recognize it but to do it in the moment is tough yeah it's it yeah it was it was amazing um it was it was amazing um it it just felt really good for a marine unit we spent a lot of time in in the water actually uh, an unprecedented amount for that kind of ship in that operating theater i mean we're talking about weeks at a time without making a poor call Mm -hmm. and two things that that always struck me from just that experience was the first was i had never seen a blue like that before in the ocean or in the water you can almost you you can almost not even describe it um just what that what that's like seeing it and a picture doesn't doesn't do it justice no and the second thing was just how vast it was i mean when you're topside on the deck of wherever you are and you look around and all you see is horizon i mean to try to put that into into words or perspective is is hard but those two things really stuck with me from my time on the ship i don't know if if i couldn't agree similar or not i couldn't agree more i mean we got to do a swim call and that was just yeah I, I, I jumped off the side of the ship, you know, and, and, and we were in the middle of the Indian Ocean and it was warm and, it, you know, I jumped and it was probably 30 feet, maybe more. Yeah. I, I can't remember, you know, and I, all I could think to myself when I hit the water was, am I ever going to stop going down? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. and then I just, I went so far down and I was like coming back up and I was like, oh man, like this is, I went a long way down. And you're right, that the color of blue, you just, you can't describe that color of blue that's out there. It's just, it. It is absolutely spectacular and, and being at night too. Um, and it's actually really interesting at night too, when you're in the Gulf specifically and all the oil platforms, they're all lit, yeah. you know, you got, so you got this vast horizon everywhere, but it's 
there's all these flames just just sprinkled throughout the throughout that that horizon um it, it's definitely something to see and then you know a big thing for for me too was at night if we were going and we were cruising along and depending on where we were in the world um if we hit like a jellyfish pod they would they would sparkle you know yeah. they would almost reflect yeah. off the off the moon at night that yeah. was really that was really awesome um there a lot of a lot of cool stuff that just i got to do and see and, and be a part of um, at, at 19 or 20 years old yeah i you know i yeah i but between 19 and 23 24 that's that was my life yeah. um that's what i did um and you know i obviously i had to get training and qualifications and, and all that stuff and, and i worked my way up to being what they call a, a top side petty officer which is I'm in control of all the arresting gear, uh, all four wires, um, and I basically directly report to the air boss, who is, you know, who is an 06, so a captain in the Navy. Um, I'm I'm directly reporting to him, and and anything that goes down or anything that's wrong is is on my butt, and I have to answer directly to him, um, which is a big deal because he's controlling everything. The air boss is controlling all the movements, controlling all the aircraft, everything that goes on on the deck is 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 his baby. Um, and so that's where, I mean, a lot, I learned a lot of good things from, from that job, um, made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, and that's where I think I, I grew the most is my mistakes. Um, and talk, which, talk about, talk about one of those mistakes, maybe in the context yeah. of that situation and how you've been able to pull it forward. Yeah. So a big, big one is, um, uh, at night, especially during night operations, uh, what we do is when, when aircraft come down and they would, their tail hook would hit the wire, but not catch it. Um, we have to go, I have to send guys out in the middle of the landing area to check the wire to make sure that no wires are broken, frayed, um, anything like that. And so, because it could pop a tire um, on another aircraft. And so my guys went out there and checked it and told me that they had two broken wires and it's kind of a normal thing. And so we, we keep a um, hacksaw in our toolbox that's um, beside us. So I had them run and grab it. Um, I didn't realize at the time that they didn't replace the blade. And so what happened was, is they were out there and they were sawing away at it and it was taking forever. And this is, again, this is in the middle of night. So on the flight deck, there's not a lot of light period. So you can't see, um, there's aircraft sitting in the pattern right now, waiting to land. You know, we had up to, I think it was like six, six or seven, it was ready to come in and we had to get this cut. Well, I didn't have. I didn't have a blade to cut it with basically. And we we're cutting it with a, with a dull, with a dull hacksaw blade, cut, trying to cut metal just doesn't work. And so then I get this call from the air boss. Hey, what's going on topside? What's going on? And, and so I answer back, you know, sir, I need to, I need uh, 30 seconds. We're going to get this cut wires down right now. Um, we need to cut it. And I don't hear anything. I thought he heard me and we keep going. And then I, my guys are going, going and they get tired. Well, I get in there and I start hacks on away. And I'm like, Oh God, this is taking forever. This is taking forever. And I hear again, topside, what's going on? Why are, what, you know, and as all this is going on, aircraft are being waved off to where they oh. can't land. And so this is all really like, this is, in, I mean, it's pretty, very critical and very important. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I'm on like the third or fourth aircraft getting waved off. And all of a sudden I see all these other, um, like flight deck officers coming my way. The handlers were coming my way. Everybody's starting to run out toward me. Um, cause I was trying to talk to the air boss. Well, I didn't realize that my, my radio had gone out. Oh, no. And so, and I, all of a sudden I was just hearing the air boss just yelling at me, what is going on? Why am I not getting a, a report? Blah, blah, blah. And so then finally the flight deck officer gets over to me and says, 
hey, what's going on? And so I give him the update <clears throat> and he's like, okay, this is what's going on. And then he's like, is your radio working? And I did like a, we, we do like a rat check, right? And so I checked it and nope, wasn't working at all. And so um, we finally got the wire cut with the, with the really dull blade. It took, it took a while, but we got it cut. And all of a sudden over the rat I heard, or over the radio I heard, um, topside come to, come to primary, primary after the after flight ops is over. And I was like, oh man, that's not good. Cause that's all the way up to the tower. And so I knew that like, like I was going to be in, I, I knew I was just going to be in trouble. And so then all of a sudden it was, it went from that to topside come to uh, flight deck control, which is right on the, uh, like on the flight deck in the tower. Um, and I was like, okay, well maybe it's not that bad. And I was like, but then they, after the, after the go was over, they told me just to come to the office, which was right below where we were. Um, and so the handler, which the handler is basically the air boss is kind of second or third in command kind of, um, who controls a lot of where the aircraft are placed on the flight deck. Um, he was a, a, he was a commander, um, or Lieutenant commander, I think at the time, Lieutenant commander Hasso, he was, he was a former ABE. And so he, he went LDO <clears throat> and got his commission. And so he knew my job a lot. Um, yeah. so he was sitting down in the, in the chair in the office and he was sitting there and very great, you know, just aged guy that you, he had just been in the Navy for a long time, very salty guy. And so you just knew it was coming. <laughs> and so I just, you know, I got down there and I, I was, I was extremely nervous. I mean, I was probably, oh God, 20, maybe 21, yeah. maybe. Yeah. Um, and, <clears throat> and he sat me down and he just, he worked through it with me and he said, you know, topside, we believe in you. Right. Um, he said, we trust you. We know you're qualified. We know that you can handle this. He's like, we, and we know you're going to make the right decision. We know what you were trying to do. You were trying to keep all four wires strung and online so that those aircraft could catch them. They have all four options to catch and to get those pilots down safely. Right. <clears throat> and he said, but you got to understand your situational awareness. Okay. If it's not, if something's not working right, you need to make it, you need to make a quicker, quicker call and to take that wire offline and fix it later. Mm -hmm. Um, cause it's not worth, you know, waving off all these birds, making them go back around the pattern and possibly cause them to run out of fuel, cause something, an accident to happen in the air, um, causing more work for a lot of other people. Yeah. Um, and, and, and he said it in the most elegant way a guy could say something with, you know, also, cutting right through your skin and saying, you know, you need to do this better. Um, but being, like I said, very elegant about it. <laughs> um, it was, it was awesome. Um, it really cut me to the core as far as, yeah, I, we believe in you just make a quicker call. You know, you got this, you know, it was, it was a motivation, but it was also a butt you and <laughs> they, they got onto me. So it, it was, it was great. And that really kind of gave me a sense of pride and, and, and helped me and to develop into, you know, being able to make quicker calls. And if sticking with that call, if it's the right call, it's the right call. Um, if it's not, you just, you get, you got to try to make a better one, you know, and learn from it, you know, and, and I never made that, I never made that bad choice again. <laughs> we, we, we never had that issue. Um, and we always had good hacksaw blades and, and, and double checking myself uh, as far as that goes. Um, so that was, that was a big one. That, that's probably the lesson that I've taken from the Navy um, into my civilian career just in general. Let's transfer this knowledge forward and yeah. let's do that as to how you transitioned out from the Navy. I know you had some reserve time and then let's get into, into your time at Seaboard. 
Yeah, so uh, so in transitioning, um, I, after my five years on the aircraft carrier, I actually went to shore duty for three years, and I went to Oklahoma City, uh, Tinker Air Force Base, for my shore duty uh, rotation, and that that lasted until about 2016, and then I had a, we had a couple of kids, um, my wife and I, and then and then we decided that it was time to maybe move home, and so I kept one foot in the door, and I'm still technically an active reservist right now, <clears throat> and so um, I had to change. I had to change rates because they didn't have my rate and job in the, in the reserves. And so I went from being an aviation rate and actually to an engineering rate. And so um, that was kind of an interesting transition um, as well. And then I, I was, I was terrified um, getting out. That was, that was, that was tough. Um, leaving that security blanket of, of, of all those things that you don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about your, you know, your paycheck, your healthcare, your, you know, all that stuff. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do when I got out. Um, I thought I might go to college. Um, honestly, I, I had applied to Iowa State University, got accepted, and I was going to enroll in the Ag Systems Tech program mm -hmm. um, to start there because I thought, you know, I, I like farm equipment. I can, I'm, I'm good with my hands. I'm good with hydraulics. Like maybe it can transfer into a civilian job and whatnot. And so I thought it might be a good idea. Uh, but then I started applying at places and um, started getting callbacks <laughs> for jobs. And Seaboard was one of those jobs. Um, and I had applied for a multi-site supervisor job. Uh, didn't really know exactly what it entailed. Mm -hmm. Didn't really know a lot about Seaboard. Didn't really know, you know, you know what it had to do with. Um, but it was a multi-site supervisor. And I thought, hey, I, you know, if I can, if I can manage a flight deck, if, you know, an aircraft carrier and a, and a crew of guys to land aircraft, I, you know, I think I can probably do, do a lot of things. And so that was kind of the mantra of the guy who hired me um, was, hey, I can teach you pigs. Right. And so I think people are almost the harder thing to do is to teach. Um, and so coming into that, you know, transitioning into seaboard, um, we, we take care of hog, hog confinements um, and we, we manage hogs. Um, we raise them from we, we have sow farms all the way up through um, the plant um, where we, we process them. Um, and so right now, currently right now, I'm in, I'm in the, we call it the wean to finish area, which is they come in as babies basically. And we grow, they grow all the way until they're about 285 pounds. Um, and then we ship them off to market. Um, and so we take care of all that. Um, and so transitioning, you know, from the military <clears throat> into this job, um, just the flexibility that you have to have, I think is, is a huge thing. Um, cause you're working with live animals, um, and they don't, they don't follow a nine to five schedule. Um, they don't follow, um, they don't work to your, uh, to your schedule. You have to be ready for anything and everything that could come at you. How much did your military service come into the hiring process? What about from the hiring person's perspective? Was that top of mind for them? Is they, were they able to clearly draw parallels between your service and the kind of work you were going to do at Seaboard? Um, I think they did. I think it was more because I, as, as I put on my resume and stuff like that, you know, I managed people, right? I, I, I managed people and equipment. And so I think that that was where they drew, drew that parallel of, okay, he can manage, you know, he can manage people on a flight deck to where they're staying safe. They're operating at a high, you know, at a high tempo. Um, and, and they're, they're taking things very seriously and, 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 and moving, you know, millions and millions of dollars of equipment around. Um, and, and operating obviously at a, at a high, at a high pace. So I think that's, I think that's where that correlation really came into play is, is between those two things is, um, as far as that goes. So on a, on a thousand pig barn, a thousand pig barn, for example, 
-hmm. how many folks do you have working with you and, and for you at any given time? So probably a thousand, you'd probably only have one. Uh, you'd, you'd only need one. Um, right now I've got, I've got seven sites totaling about, um, I would say close to 30, 35,000 spaces. Um, and so that I have about six people right now doing, doing those sites, um, split up obviously between, between those, um, taking care of those pigs, um, and those sites. Um, cause just like the pigs, the sites are assets as well. Um, you gotta, you gotta maintain the sites. You gotta maintain, um, maintain, I, I know it's a pig barn and people say it's a pig barn, but, but at the same time, it, it's an asset. You gotta keep it clean. You gotta keep it as best you can. Um, all the maintenance, the fans, the, the tin on the roof, the tin on the side of the building, the, the curtains, the shoot, the loading chute, uh, all that stuff has to be maintained, um, and work where, you know, getting maintenance done on that, um, whether it be like a PMS maintenance or, you know, or just a, just an overhaul needs to be done and needs to be identified um, and taken care of. Brock, I mean, the, the Navy didn't teach you to manage a pig barn. How did you gather these these skills? Yeah, it's, it, pigs are, um, like, like my boss had told me, you know, pigs are not necessarily hard. Again, it's, it's the people, um, pigs are, pigs are pigs, right? And, and it's, it's dealing with the, the people who take care of them and, and tra training them properly on how to identify, um, what a sick pig looks like and what a healthy pig looks like and what a pig should be looking like. Um, those things are, are what you have to find. And, and I think the military helped me, especially, the diversity um, that that we have, um, because uh, you know, right now a lot of people are hiring, right? And so we we are short staffed um, as far as that goes. And we've we've had people uh, come up on they're they're called Tianvisas uh, from from Mexico, and they're people with degrees that have veterinarian degrees, agricultural engineering degrees, um, and that just want to come up and work and and get some knowledge on on pig farms and stuff like that. And then, and then they go back, um, you know, they may go back to Mexico in however many years they stay. Um, and so understanding how to work with different people, you know, uh, of, of backgrounds of, of, you know, doesn't matter. Um, just, I think that the Navy helped me with that and just being patient and flexible with, with, with everyone. If you had infinite money and infinite time and unlimited resources, if there was a piece of technology that you could create that would make your job easier and the jobs of the people who manage these animals easier what would that be oh um maybe a an automatic pig counter that's a that's one of those things out there that uh we have to do a lot of recounting um just because it's uh it's it's a process that we have to to ensure accuracy right mm -hmm. um that we have what we say we have in the barns that we say uh, you know, that we, we know we're shipping out and stuff like that <laughs> somehow to automate that, I guess would be, would be something, uh, would be nice because <laughs> it, it takes time. Um, if you've got a 4,000 head barn, it, it takes a while to count 4,000, uh, baby pigs. Brock, I think that, you know, there is some, there's some perception that consumers and the general public have about these kinds of pig farms and just the way that the animals are, are treated or whatnot. Can you give us something that perhaps most people don't know about these operations that would maybe kind of go against that common narrative? Yeah, I think, you know, you see a lot of things uh, you know, from PETA or, or whoever activist groups that are trying to, you know, say that we're, we're, 
we're malnutritioning the the pigs or we're we're not giving them adequate care i just that couldn't be farther from the truth um if you really walked a day in, in my shoes or my my employee's shoes um, i think you would understand what the lengths we go to uh to really effectively make that pig's life as, as best as you can um, we don't overcrowd the pigs in the pen. Those pigs have plenty of space to, to walk around, to, to get feed, to get water. Um, you know, we don't, uh, we, we don't do the swinging and we don't do any of that stuff, you know, for, for, you know, you know, trying to euthanize pigs that way. That's, that's not how we do things. You know, it's, it's very humane. It, it's, you know, we, we give them shots, we give them medication to, to make them feel better. We, we do as much as we can um, to, you know, positively affect that pig's life while it's, while it's there. We give it high quality feed. We give it, you know, it's, it, you know, the, again, the temperature control thing is something that I think, you know, people look out there and they see dogs chained up outside. Like you're not going to see our pigs outside chained up. <laughs> like that's, you know, I think that's a big mis misconception is that we don't care enough. Um, and I think that if people would really dig into it, I think that you would see that we, we care, more than you would you would even imagine um, about our animals, and that's and that goes not only just for in the pigs, it goes for transportation, you know, transporting the pigs. We don't we don't overstock the pigs. We don't we don't do that. Um, that's not our process. Uh, that's not what we believe. Uh, and so I think that's I think if they would just kind of open your mind a little bit and understand what we're actually doing here, um, we're trying to we're trying to provide a uh, you know good protein to the world, not just, you know, even just our country, but other countries as well. Because um, we all know that everybody needs, everybody needs to eat. And, and, you know, and so and this is a, this is a great way. And, and, and it's a, yeah, that's, 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 that's what I'd say to that. <clears throat> the climate control aspect of that was not something that I was, that I was aware of. So it's interesting yeah. that you, you mentioned that there's so much effort put into keeping these animals at that particular temperature. Yeah. Not just because of the quality of the product that's achieved as a result of that, but to, to kind of contribute to quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's huge too, you know, I mean, and as far as it goes, we step down, you know, you step down from that 86 degrees as the pigs get older, cause they like it a little cooler, um, but they don't get down very cold at all. And then as far as, you know, the barns are climate controlled and there's alarms at all the barns, right? And so all the barns have alarms to where if something goes wrong, then we can we can address that and we can go out and you know it, it it may be 30 below and I'm going out to check on a site that needs to be checked on that has an alarm. Um you know that maybe a curtain dropped and it's 40 degrees now in there. Well we got to get that fixed or a heater went out or um you know power went off and there's the fans aren't running. So we have a lot of stop blocks in place to where if something happens in the barn, regardless of if somebody is there or not, those pigs are still taken care of and they're monitored in a way. Um, that way that it's, it's, it's 24 hour care really. Yeah. Uh, so if something were to happen, somebody's going out there, somebody's going to go look at those pigs. Somebody's going to figure out what's wrong um, and, and, and go back from there. So yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty important. You described an instance with the arresting cable and the wire when you were in the Navy and how the interaction with your superior left such a strong impact on you. Is there, can you recall an instance at Seaboard where you've had to have a similar conversation like that with one of your employees? Uh, yeah, um, there was actually one time when we were, we were going through and trying to 
Oh, it, it had to do with water. Um, and so um, somebody was changing uh, a water line to repair it. I think it was repaired or we were changing it to put them on medication. And so there are separate, there's a separate water line for medication and a separate water for, or separate line for fresh water. And so they switched, they switched them. And so just that severity of, Hey, we can't do this at all. Even, even for two hours, even for, you know, however long it was that I noticed, I noticed that. Um, and then pigs didn't go very long without it. It was more of a, I was in there as they were doing it. And I noticed that it didn't happen, but I wanted them to understand the severity of like, that can really negatively affect your animals. So that was the, one of those like hard conversations that I could, I, you know, I can terminate you for not, you know, for leaving these pigs without water. Um, that's an animal welfare and we don't do that. That's, that's, that is a terminable offense in our eyes that we have zero tolerance for that stuff. So. Um, do you know, in hindsight, how that employee received or received <laughs> it? I, well, I, I can say that they, they definitely were always checking their water lines a lot more. <laughs> Brock's ability to recognize in a moment the significance of his involvement in helping bring the last of our forces safely back into Kuwait was impressive. It can be difficult to realize how important those moments can be while you're in them, but Brock demonstrated a keen sense of self-awareness. He did it again when he described the butt-chewing he got for not making a quicker decision in the middle of the night when one of the arresting cables was broken. Capturing the value of these mistakes is something military veterans are uniquely skilled at reincorporating, so to speak, into their lives post-military service. Brock's point about pigs being the easy part, but people being the more difficult aspect of a profession like this to train, I think, is absolutely true. As Will mentioned in the previous episode, there is a uniqueness to every person's circumstances. But as Brock notes, there is also a uniqueness to their personalities. It's easy to recognize that this exists, but difficult to put into practice in the moment when time matters. It takes reps and reps and reps to get good at it. Knowing how to manage these different circumstances and personalities is something the military instilled in both Will and Brock, and that they've been able to bring it forward to their time at Seaboard Foods. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Vets and Ag podcast brought to you by AGD Consulting. If you enjoyed this episode and think other military veterans and supporters would benefit from these insights and stories, please give us a review and share on social media. You can also find previous episodes and learn more about AGD Consulting by visiting our website. Finally, if you have any recommendations of future guests who are military veterans or supporters leading the way in agribusiness, ag tech, or agripreneurship, please send them our way. I'm your host, Mike Desa, and until next time, stay frosty.